This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intricasso. Joining me today is Mr. Adam Lustig, Senior Policy Development Manager for TFAH, or Trust for America's Health, to discuss the Trust's recent report, Leveraging Evidence-Based Policies to Improve Health Control Costs and Create Health Equity. Adam, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, David. Mr. Lustig's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Very briefly on background, listeners are likely aware the Biden administration has given priority to addressing or reducing health inequities. When discussing health inequity, meaning distributing health-related resources based on a recipient's needs, the social determinants of health are immediately begged since one's social or lived environment is substantially more responsible than medical care for explaining health status and because the poor and or minority population's social and economic circumstances are comparatively worse. This explains why, as the report notes, race and ethnicity-rather-based health disparities total over $90 billion annually in excess medical costs. Listeners of this podcast are aware I've discussed social determinants on several occasions. Most Most recently, for example, this past March, I discussed the subject with UCSF's doctors Braveman and Gottlieb. With me again to discuss the Trust for America Health's recent social determinant of health-related report is Adam Lustig. So Adam, with that as a brief introduction, let me start with an overarching question. What was the intent of this report, or alternatively, what do you hope to accomplish? Um, So the intent of this report, David, is to really highlight, um, as you had already stated, the significant inequity that exists in the United States. And so uh, typically, and and I'm assuming for many of your listeners, people will automatically think of uh, health inequities. But those inequities extend to many other facets of society, um, many of which have a significant contribution on individuals and communities' health. Um, So the, the purpose of this work is to really highlight um, some of these other areas that uh, individuals, policymakers, and communities may not necessarily uh, think of as health policy, um, but are really the drivers of health. Um, I'm sure uh, some of your listeners know that in the, the SDOH model, that about 80% of an individual's uh, health determinants are outside of clinical care. And so with this work, we wanted to highlight some, some of those areas um, in addition to accessing health care and thinking about individuals and communities' opportunities for economic mobility, uh, what it means to have safe and affordable housing, um, how do we promote safe and healthy learning environments for children, and then um, also thinking about the, the role of tax policy and what are some of the health-promoting excise taxes um, that we've seen that have existed in the United States for a number of years, um, as well as uh, those that are emerging um, as areas that can really help uh, tackle um, something like the obesity crisis we've been experiencing in the United States. Okay, thank you. So as you know and would agree, I'm sure, Adam, that we're talking here about upstream effects. Uh, Try to address those so individuals don't show up in the clinical practice already substantially compromised because, as, as you discussed in this report, poor education, homelessness, poor access, uh, poor economic circumstances, et cetera, uh, which, of course, as you know, 80% are substantially more 
uh, relevant in determining uh, health status. So let's get into uh, the specifics of this report. Um, I, I, I did find it, uh, it's, it's an efficient 70 pages. I did find it very useful in, in sort of cataloging and capturing uh, to a, a substantive extent uh, policies that really have proven uh, to be successful and are obviously worth uh, uh, reminding uh, policymakers, particularly, of course, since we're the, as I said, the Biden administration is that. So you have these five categories. I'll just identify them here. Healthcare, economic mobility, affordable housing, safe and healthy learning environments, certainly education, primary education, and health promotion taxes. We'll see how much time we have to get at uh, however many of these, but let's let's start with healthcare because you do note a few, uh, three specifically here, and I'll just uh, I, I identify them: expanding Medicaid, which of course we've done during the pandemic. Uh, you discuss at some length expanding access to home visiting programs, which I find sadly do not get enough attention, and use and training of also without sufficient attention, use and training of community health workers. So uh, feel free to uh, discuss any of these three, although I will say the latter two are particularly my interest and bias. I'm sure, David, and thank you. Um, so I'll just briefly touch on Medicaid expansion. Um, as, as you just said, uh, you've covered this topic uh, a few times, at least on your podcast. And so I think the one thing that we really like to highlight here is that often, often the arguments we hear against Medicaid expansion are the economic arguments that will either be um, too expensive uh, for states or that they will um, eventually end up uh, on the hook for a significant amount of the cost. Um, but one thing that we, we highlight in the report is with the uh, most recent American Rescue Plan that was passed a, a, few, a few months ago at this point, um, there are even more incentives for those 12 remaining states to adopt Medicaid expansion and to really for the federal government to pick up a larger percentage of that tab. Um, and uh, with that, um, there are just a significant number of individuals all across the, the country who would gain access to critically needed health insurance. And so current estimates are about um, around 4 million individuals um, who are uh, non-elderly that are currently uninsured would be eligible for this coverage. And so that would go a, a long way for uh, many, many individuals and communities, um, especially uh, the, the states that have yet to expand. Uh, we often see uh, not as good health outcomes as, as the other states that have expanded. And for the states that have expanded, um, it, I think it will come to no surprise to you that they are seeing reduced rates of um, uninsurance. They are seeing increased access to health services. They are seeing um, improved quality of health services for those who previously did not have access to them. And then as I shared, um, there are some economic uh, aspects as well. And so uh, Medicaid expansion and some of the research that we reviewed was associated with a 4.4 to 4.7% reduction in total state spending. And this was in an examination from 2014 to 2017. And so that's just from the, the state government perspective. And thinking about the, the other key stakeholders here, it also re significantly reduces uh, uncompensated care. Um, so in uh, Kentucky and Arkansas, uh, Kentucky saw a 14% uh, reduction in uncompensated care, and Arkansas saw a 30% reduction in uncompensated care. And as we know, in, with many of the states that have yet to expand Medicaid, um, they tend to be more rural, and we've seen over the years many rural hospitals are closing, and so even those who, who currently do have access to health services are potentially losing those um, that access. And so uh, that's just one area that we really like to highlight that it's 
It improves the, the economic well-being of the state. It improves the economic well-being of individuals who now have access to care. And it, it improves the financial standing of hospitals that are often in critical need of, of this money um, in order for them to stay open. Um, as, as you said as well, um, you're specifically interested in home visiting programs. Um, and this is something we were um, really interested in highlighting just because of the the sheer amount of research and evidence that support these programs. Um, and so with these programs, um, they've, been, uh, they've been shown to improve uh, the mental health of the women who are receiving uh, these home visiting uh, services. And uh, for your listeners who may not be um, as familiar with home visiting programs, um, they're often early childhood home visiting programs. Mm -hmm. So they provide pregnant women and families, um, especially those who are at high risk, um, for pregnancy-related health complications, and that's often uh, what we and there's uh, those are linked to disparities, um, both in terms of uh, racial and ethnic disparities, um, and provide uh, services, skills, and resources to the to their mothers and their newborns um, to order and ensure that the the mother has uh, good health outcomes both uh, before and after her pregnancy, and for the children um, after they are born. Um, and so, um, it, as I said, it improves the, the mental health of the women who are receiving the services. It improves the, the health of the infant as well. Um, and just thinking about some of the longer-term impacts as well, it actually uh, increases school readiness for the children that have received those, ser those services. And so something that um, we, we uh, recommend in the report is for states to really um, try and build capacity and provide resources for these uh, very important um, and evidence-based programs. Uh, the, the one uh, thing I would like to highlight as well, and this links a little bit to uh, uh, Medicaid expansion, is that um, in the American Rescue Plan, there, there was a provision in there that um, allows Medicaid programs to extend their postpartum coverage. Um, and so uh, this is something we've seen a number of states either uh, take up or indicate that they will take up. Um, and this extends uh, the, the postpartum coverage from the typical 60 days to a full year. And so this really ensures that uh, mothers uh, have the, the opportunity to continue access, accessing necessary services um, that will improve not only their own health, but the health of their child as well. You know, if I could just, if you, before you maybe get to the third uh, community health workers, so uh, one of the acronyms, which I don't even believe is pronounceable, but it's uh, M-I-E-C-H-V. So this is Maternal Infant Early Childhood Home Visiting. So that's the name, formal name of the program. And you note that despite however successful these programs are, in 2019, you note, under this M-I-E-C-H-V program uh, or operating home visiting programs, um, it's... It's less than half the states, you say 23 states have passed home visiting legislation since the establishment of MIE-CHV. So uh, to the extent that these uh, programs are successful, which they are, they're only offered in less than uh, half the states. So I think there's obviously the point being there's a lot more opportunity uh, to exploit um, uh, these programs, and particularly because, of course, you said it has a lot to do with uh, maternal and child uh, health. So uh, – Adam, you want to move on to, if you could give an overview of, again, uh, community health workers. Uh, sure. But, David, I would like to provide one point of clarification. Please. So while those uh, 23 states that you just referenced, um, what we talk about in the report is they've passed their, their own um, home visiting legislation. And so th this would set up um, complementary funding streams to that of the MIECHV program, which, which is a federal program. So um, in those remaining uh, 
uh, 20, 27 states and, and the District of Columbia, uh, we know that they may still be operating programs, but they may not be providing their own state funding to further bolster them. Um, so that's something that we highlight with all of our recommendations in this report is uh, what are what are some of the roles for uh, the federal government to, to bolster some of these policies? What is the role of uh, state policymakers? And in some cases, we also highlight what can be some of the local considerations as well, um, given that many of these policies, when we're talking about them, the funding may come from uh, the, the feds or the state, but at the end of the day, it's the localities that are implement, implementing them. Great. Important, important added distinction. So thank you for that. All right, so we're moving to community health workers. And just to say, uh, and I should have referenced this, I actually interviewed someone, must have been five years ago, on uh, developing, this was a Duke professor, on further developing um, uh, community health workers. But go ahead, please. Um, So um, with uh, community health workers, so um, they are uh, trained uh, uh, public health or lay workers who really serve as the uh, connectors or the glue between uh, healthcare systems, social service providers, and health departments to the communities that they're serving. And so uh, the, the one aspect I really highlight here is that community health workers are members of their own community. So you have a lot of built, uh, built-in trust that's already there, which is often a significant barrier when trying to um, reach certain communities um, and certain populations. And so um, we've seen a number of different community health worker models uh, being utilized, whether they are being funded through public health departments or other state agencies. We've seen a lot of uh, hospital systems and insurers also adopting this model because it's a way in which for them to better engage with their uh, with their patients or beneficiaries. And there's been um, a, a good amount of research on this. And this is a model that we're con- continuing to see grow across the country. Um, and so uh, when, where we've seen community health workers uh, implemented, we've seen improved health outcomes. Uh, we've seen improved access to care and reductions in hospital readmissions, which is always an area um, that I know uh, hospital systems and insurance companies are, are very interested in. And it also improves uh, care delivery and specifically um, with chronic disease management. Um, so for, for individuals who are experiencing uh, chronic diseases, um, they often need a lot of touch points to ensure that they're receiving regu- regular health services. And so having this member of the community um, sort of uh, holding their hand or guiding them through the health system is is a model um, that that is not only beneficial to that individual, um, but it's beneficial to the hospital systems and the insurers that are engaging with them. And um, in terms of the economic benefits, um, there's been a number of evaluations of community health worker models, both at the local level and even at the national level. Um, so the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, or CMMI, um, they did an analysis of over 100 models that um, utilized a wide variety of chronic disease management programs. And of those 100 models that were examined, only those that u- utilized community health workers lowered, lowered costs. And that was by $138 per beneficiary per quarter. So if you think about that, that's about this 600 plus dollars per year um, per beneficiary. And that can really go um, a long way in uh, providing that money to, uh, to handle other services that they may need. Um, additionally, um, it's not only just those near-term cost savings, but there are some uh, long-term cost savings as well. Um, in New Mexico, they had a smaller uh, study that looked at uh, how community health workers worked with about 450 high-utilizers high utilizers and Medicaid managed care plans um, over a six-month period 
and they reduced utilization costs by about $2 million compared with um, their cost pre-intervention. Um, and so th this is a model that we think is not only um, culturally um, appropriate and really meets the needs of communities and people where they are, um, but it also has a significant um, and robust economic impact, which is um, something that we try to highlight with all of the policies in this report. Great. Thank you. So these are two sides of a coin in a sense, home visiting and community health workers. And the idea being that uh, if care could be delivered more uh, or be more distributed or delivered more locally, there are certain uh, definitive events. Events that you, you noted Kentucky previously, I saw also on the page 20 of the report that the Kentucky Home Place Program also for every dollar spent had over $11 in savings and pre-mention of the American Rescue Plan legislation this past March, that included a small amount of money uh, to invest in community health workers. I think it's a little more than $300 million. So thank you uh, for those uh, summaries. Let's move to, uh, again, economic mobility. Uh, there were three uh, subtopics uh, the report gives attention. It's the Earned Income Tax Credit, uh, the living wage and uh, paid sick and family. Let's start with the living wage. You, sadly, in my view, you don't oftentimes associate a living wage with public health, although it should seem obvious. I did find particularly interesting your discussion on living wage as it relates to the current federal minimum wage of seven fifty. It, it, since it's not indexed to inflation or productivity, um, it's actually bizarrely. Uh, a little in that if you factored in uh, productivity, it'd be well north of $20 an hour. Anyway, if you could address, maybe start with the living wage. Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I think it comes to no surprise to anyone that if um, you do not have a lot of financial resources, you can't, you can't access almost anything that you need to live, whether that is um, affordable and safe housing, whether that is um, a proper education, whether that's being to being able to access health services. These are all linked to one another. And so um, what we wanted to do um, with addressing this policy recommendation of uh, a living wage or a, a higher uh, minimum wage than that of the, the federal minimum wage currently is to really show um, not only the, the health impacts, but also how it can improve uh, productivity and um, in some cases as well, actually expand access uh, to healthcare. Um, and so we cite an example in uh, San Francisco where they have a living wage policy um, that as, as part of that, not only did their, uh, the homework, home care workers wages nearly double, um, but it also um, in their law required that they provide health insurance for workers um, so that it can become more affordable to them. That's what we uh, I would call a dual win. And so you're not only um, increasing access to health services, but also ensuring that that person has more money in their pockets so they can purchase uh, uh, necessary uh, services or products that they may need. Um, and as, as you stated, uh, the federal minimum wage has not been increased for, for many, many years, and inflation and productivity has increased, and yet th th those, uh, that federal minimum wage has, uh, main has maintained. And so um, we've seen some examples of localities um, that have established uh, living wage policies that significantly increases uh, the minimum wage offered um, to workers. Um, sometimes there are carve-outs for uh, tipped workers. That, that is something that we do briefly address in the report. And um, I actually, I was doing an interview last week in Oregon, and um, I was looking through their minimum wage policy. And starting in 2023, they start to... Um, 
link their minimum wage to CPI. And so that's, that's the type of thing that um, we look, we look towards and recommend because it's essentially recognizing that costs increase over time. And so therefore wages should also increase along with them. Great. Uh, thank you. Let's go to, uh, if you can make brief comment on either of the other two, the earned income tax, maybe we just focus on that. Um, you know, there was much discussion during the, this public health emergency about frontline workers getting paid sick and family leave, and that was addressed to some extent, uh, I wouldn't say necessarily adequately. I mentioned uh, earned income tax credit because it is the case, and I did uh, read recently last year, uh, nearly $10 billion of VITC benefits were unclaimed. Um, so uh, it can, uh, it does and can have even greater uh, beneficial effect. So your recommendation on EITC, please. Uh, yeah, and so, um, David, I think what you were just referencing, the $10 billion left on the table regarding EITC, that's for the federal EITC. Correct. And a lot of the issues with that, mo- with that money being left on the table is that if an individual doesn't file their taxes, it may not be ne- necessary for them to do so then they wouldn't know that they could actually access uh, this tax credit. And so that, that's a huge component that we talk about um, is trying to promote um, education on the availability of, a, of the federal EITC. In addition, um, there are a number of states across the country as well. Um, so it's 29 states in the District of Columbia that actually have a state-level EITC. Mm-hmm. And so they, ha- they can have an EITC on their, on their state uh, tax credits. And so that's something we really um, talk about in the report and emphasize the importance of having a refundable tax credit. So that way, um, they are actually able to receive money back and utilize that money um, to, to necessary services, sort of what I was just talking about with, with living wage policies. And there's just been, there's a very robust evidence base supporting um, EITC programs, both at the state and federal level, specifically on mothers and children. And so evidence shows that it improves um, maternal and child health. It decreases incidences of low birth weight births. It improves child well-being and academic achievement. And there's been a, a number of economic benefits as well. I think one thing we try to emphasize is this is a working tax credit. You need to be working in order to receive this tax credit. Um, and so it, the evidence has shown that it actually increases employment. It lifts families and individuals out of poverty. Uh, the, the most recent data um, that we highlight in a report is that in 2018, the federal EITC lifted over five and a half million individuals out of poverty, and that includes three million children. That's a really staggering figure. Um, and then it also um, serves as a short-term safety net. So when you're able to have this, this money in your pocket, you're able to um, access health services if you need them, if you may not have previously been able to afford them. And we also just highlight at the end of the day, um, with the number of tax credits that are available in our country, whether that's at the federal, state, or local level, this is a very effective and relatively low-cost tax credit, and it's really going to the families that most need it. Um, and so uh, we're, we're hopeful that we'll continue to see expansion of EITC in states that do not have these policies in place. Um, and for those that do, we encourage them uh, to make their uh, EITC refundable um, if it is not refundable, and to also increase the amount that is available to, to families and individuals. Right. You talk about the value or the percent of the of the tax credit. You mentioned refundable, also eligibility. Uh, you argue that eligibility for the tax credit should be expanded. Just to note on point, uh, I think you cite it's something like 29 states and D.C., I have a state uh, EITC policy, so obviously 
uh, 40% uh, are missing. Uh, let's, with our time, uh, let's, let's jump to, I'd like to jump to the last or the fifth uh, you identify, and then I have a follow-up question. And again, uh, the last of these five are health promotion taxes. And I guess the most controversial one, maybe because of what Mayor Bloomberg tried to do in New York City, of course, is the sugar tax. Um, but of course, the, the most traditional note is the tobacco tax. But what are your recommendations as it relates to these? Um, so for our health promoting excise taxes, we, we address, uh, three taxes and, and David, you just mentioned two. So we have, uh, tobacco taxes and alcohol taxes, which have been around for decades and decades, decades, and I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with them. Um, as uh, will come to no surprise, um, for both tobacco and alcohol taxes, when you, um, increase prices, you typically see a decrease in, uh, in use of these, of these harmful products. Um, the one thing that we really try to make the argument for in these is that these types of taxes should not just be used as means to generate revenue, but rather the revenue generated by these taxes should be reinvested in the communities that are most adversely impacted by the use of tobacco and alcohol. And so these can be a comprehensive tobacco cessation programs. Um, they can uh, just be other health-promoting uh, programs that occur in the communities. But really trying to think about how do we strategically utilize the revenue being raised by these taxes um, in order to, to, to benefit those communities. Um, as, as you also highlighted, uh, we, we've uh, also addressing in this report sugar-sweetened beverage taxes. Um, and so um, we, we all know that consuming sugar is linked to obesity, it's linked to type 2 diabetes, heart disease, tooth decay, um, and, and eventually death because of the, the number of chronic diseases that it contributes to. Um, and the most recent data from the uh, BRFSS, which is the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System, mm -hmm. um, showed that about uh, 63% of all youth and almost 50% of all uh, of adults drank a sugar-sweetened beverage on any given day. So that's a very high percentage. Um, and so what we really try and highlight is that if you're able to reduce the number of individuals who are consuming sugar-sweetened beverages, um, you will have a stronger case for obesity prevention. Um, it, again, provides another revenue source that can then be uh, utilized for health-promoting policy. Uh, policies. And so in our report, we highlight in uh, Seattle, um, not only did uh, children and their parents uh, see reduced uh, use of sugar-sweetened beverage and consumption of sugar-sweetened beverages, but the money raised from that sugar-sweetened beverage tax uh, was, was actually used to help provide over uh, 6,200 families who are food insecure with uh, $800 worth of groceries. Um, and so again, think about how do, how do we uh, disincentivize uh, the consumption of unhealthy foods and really try and incentivize or provide supports for um, consuming healthier food. Right, such that the revenue doesn't go to the general fund and it's targeted for a health purpose. So exactly right, yes. So thank yeah, absolutely. you. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, I do have a final question I, I do want to ask because it's an interesting day today, August 9th. Um, so maybe I'll just ask that and then maybe opportunity for a closing comment. So you may know today, and listeners are well aware that I've spent a lot of time over the last several years on global warming or the climate crisis. And in fact, I'll just note, and I did post this on the website, today uh, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change published its sixth report. Uh, the report's just out again today. It's the work of six or seven years' worth of effort, uh, beyond comprehensive. Um, and it uh, it's several hundred scientists, and they note that we're in um, 
Uh, we're at about 1.1 uh, degrees centigrade warming, having all sorts of catastrophic effects. If you're paying any attention, of course, of course, wildfires, drought, and flooding around the world. And I'll just cite uh, uh, with the report the UN General Secretary, and I'm quoting him, said, the report is code red for humanity. Alarm bells are deafening. The evidence is irrefutable. Gas, greenhouse gases are choking our planet and putting billions of people at immediate risk. Quote, close quote. So my question is, had the, so my question is maybe a challenge. Did the trust think about, and I realize uh, you cover a lot of ground in 77 pages, but did the trust consider environmental uh, factors, uh, which of course are a social determinant, um, I'm curious to know that, or will uh, the trust uh, put some emphasis or interest uh, in addressing uh, climate change and the climate crisis? Uh, the Biden administration says it's committed. We'll see if they get, of course, a clean energy standard, amongst other things. Uh, but I did, uh, the question was begged throughout my reading of the report, so I'm interested to ask. Yeah, and David, that, that's a great question. I, I think well, we recognize that that's an area that we did not address in this report. Um, as you highlighted, um, the, the report is already 70 pages, and we want to try and make it as uh, readable as possible while providing as much inf information as possible. Um, but we do have a separate um, body of work at the Trust for America's Health that does specifically focus on climate change. Um, in December of last year, we released a report along with uh, Johns Hopkins uh, Bloomberg School of Public Health on climate change and health and assessing state preparedness. And so um, in this report, we assessed uh, different states for who are the least prepared, uh, more prepared, and most prepared, and put them into those three buckets, as well as looking at uh, for, for these states, which are the least vulnerable, more vulnerable, and most vulnerable. And so really um, looking at a matrix of where states fit in all of these. Um, and we also have um, some upcoming work where we'll be highlighting some case studies of uh, localities and states that are really ensuring that they are prepared uh, for climate change and looking to tackle it as well. Um, but um, while it is a critically important issue, it was just not something that we directly addressed in this report that we're talking about today. Okay, thank you. I am familiar with your December report. Uh, so thank you for reminding me. So with a, a minute or two remaining time, uh, Adam, let me just ask you finally, sort of, uh, again, back to my opening question, uh, ideally, what would your hope or expectation, obviously, this be read and debated by policy folks on the Hill, of course, Hill staff, et cetera, regulators. Um, but where would you hope to get with this? Um, so, so we hope that that action is taken um, on, on the policies that we're recommending here. Um, and as I mentioned in the report, we include local, state, and federal recommendations. And so there are opportunities that may not be through legislative means, but it could be through considerations for implementation. So uh, a state may already have one of these programs, but they may not be providing the, the state supplementary funding for it, or they may not be implementing a, a certain aspect of it. So take uh, EITC, for example, they may not, their uh, tax credit may not be refundable. And so I'm trying to change some heart and minds on that end. Um, the other thing that we really try to emphasize uh, with this report is that while access to healthcare is uh, critically important, uh, good health depends on more than just access to healthcare services. And so we really view um, this report as an opportunity to educate those in the health field 
about these uh, health promoting policies that exist out of the healthcare system and vice versa as well for those that may be working in education or housing or in fiscal policy that there are some uh, really robust uh, health impacts of the policies that they're working on and they should be thinking about how they can uh, collaborate with uh, public health or other healthcare stakeholders um, to ensure that we see these policies realized and at the end of the day really providing an opportunity for individuals and communities across the country uh, to live full and healthy lives. Great. Nicely stated, Adam. So I appreciate the time for this overview for the report. Uh, again, leveraging evidence-based policies to improve health control costs and create health equity. So Adam, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, David. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.